my faith wasn't challenged at college. My faith was challenged in a church. And so I just cried out to God, you know, if, if you exist, and this was kind of after some, some deconstruction, if you exist, God, you've, you've got to send me somebody who can talk to me about these things because I didn't want to abandon it unless I had investigated the other side of things. So I, I'd heard all these skeptical arguments and I just wanted to know what the other side was saying. Welcome to the Transforming Discipleship Podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com. This podcast is designed to help church leaders think about what it looks like to make disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Oliver Hersey, and today I am joined by our producer, the one and only Kelsey, not Collister anymore, it's Ballas. How are you doing, Kelsey? Oh, I'm doing really well, Oliver. I actually finally got the English setter puppy that I had been researching for you for like did. four months and it's sleeping behind me. So I hope it stays asleep during oh. this episode. <laughs> yes. We're going to have to see a picture of that eventually. Yeah. So yeah. Awesome. It might pop its head in. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Yeah. But I'm really excited uh, that Elisa is here with us. I've been uh, watching her YouTube channel religiously. So so I yes. appreciate the work uh, you're doing, Elisa. Elisa, welcome to our podcast. Thanks. It's so great to be with you, Oliver and Kelsey. I am I've been really looking forward to this interview. So let's I'm excited. I'm gonna just give our some of our listeners a little bit of background. They may not know who you are, Elisa, but you're you're a big deal. So uh we wanna just What we're going to talk about today, I'm really excited. It's a topic that's super important to me. Um, How do you navigate a crisis of faith? And many of our listeners maybe know you, Elisa. You were a part of, uh, I don't want to, go ahead and tell us what you were a part of. So I spent about seven years as a part of the CCM group Zoe Girl. So some of your listeners may remember Zoe Girl from the early 2000s, sort of through the mid-2000s. But yeah, Yeah. did a lot of fun tours and, and a great experience. And that was very important and meaningful work. I know that, that was, you were very invested in that, but you're still doing some really meaningful work, not just as a mom and, and a family and raising kids. You're doing some really meaningful work in the world of theology and apologetics. And so others of our listeners may actually know some of your more recent work that you've done in regards to your publications with the Gospel Coalition and your work there, as well as your most recent book that was published during a pandemic. It's always a good time to publish a book in the pandemic. (laughs) Right, exactly, yes. And and we're going to talk about this book today. The title is, for our listeners, it's Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. I have read it, and I know Kelsey's read, I think he read all of it or most of it, and I have, I love this book. I was a big fan of it um, all through it, and, and I know that many of our listeners probably have not heard of this book yet, because it's very new. But I'm wondering, Elisa, maybe you could just really briefly give us, you know, some background to the book. What's it about? And then maybe even a little bit of just the backstory that led to the development of it. My whole life, I I always knew I would be in music. That was my heart. That was my dream. That's what my dad did. So I never dreamed I would go into any kind of theology or apologetics or even book writing or anything like that. That was just a complete surprise to me. But there's a story there, and actually it's the story I chronicle in the book, and that is that after Zoe Girl came off the road, I went through a time of really intense doubt and some deconstruction of my my faith. You know, I went I, I went from being just about the most sincere Christian you could imagine, loving Jesus with all my heart, loving the Bible— 
to, uh, as an adult, really, for the first time, experiencing really significant intellectual doubts about what I believed. And the reason for that is that my husband and I had joined a church. You know, we all hear this story of a Christian kid growing up with a Christian family. They go to church. They go off to college, and then their faith gets rocked by an evolutionary biology class or a philosophy professor, and they deconstruct or they go through doubt. Uh, well, I had a very similar experience, only my faith wasn't challenged at college. My faith was challenged in a church. And so this church we were going to, I was invited to be a part of a much smaller group that was going to be asking hard questions. We were going to be studying what I thought we were going to be studying the Bible and the intellectual side of my faith. I was really excited, but it was actually more of the pastor's deconstruction. So we were reading books, we were discussing things, but everybody in the class was sort of at some point in their process of deconstruction. And so after we left the church, all of those doubts that were planted in the class began to take root in my own heart and grow. And so I just cried out to God, you know, if if you exist, and this was kind of after some some deconstruction, if you exist, God, you've, you've got to send me somebody who can talk to me about these things because I didn't want to abandon it unless I had investigated the other side of things. So I, I'd heard all these skeptical arguments, and I just wanted to know what the other side was saying and kind of make my decision from there. So God used apologetics to help rebuild my faith. And so I, that's really what the book is about. It's my story of walking through those doubts. What were my questions? What were the answers that I found? And the reason that it's in response to progressive Christianity is because years later, the church that I was at rebranded itself as a progressive Christian church. And that's when I thought, oh, that's what that was. So I began to study that movement and read the books and listen to their podcasts so that I'd be able to sort of analyze it and help Christians have language to respond to it, to have biblical answers and answers from uh, philosophy and, and all different disciplines. And so it was a difficult journey, but I'm so thankful to be able to maybe help somebody else who might be going through the same thing. If you exist, God, if you exist, I wonder how many people have ever prayed that prayer and said those words, those four words and taking the time to do that. As I was reading your book and as I'm listening to you explain all that right now, Elise, I mean, you're, you're talking about apologetics, right? There's a fancy word out there for apologetics. And I mean, this is what you, this is what you do, Elisa. Maybe talk for a minute about what is apologetics. There might be some of our listeners today that aren't familiar with that term. How would you explain it? Yeah, so there are a lot of misconceptions surrounding that word apologetics. I think some people picture really high-level intellectual stuffy professors just kind of staring down their noses at everybody with this intellectual arrogance or something. Other people just think it's very combative with people debating each other, and there is a, there is debate certainly in apologetics. But apologetics is just basically giving a reason for why you believe what you believe. And so in that sense, every Christian is already doing apologetics. And so I, I think that the way I like to word it is we're already doing it. Let's just get really good at at doing it. And of course, there's the the verse, First uh, Peter 3.15, where Peter's actually writing to the persecuted Christians in Asia Minor, and he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. And that word that Peter uses there for defense is the Greek word, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation here, but it's apologia. And mm, pretty, it, that's pretty good. Is that pretty good? 
good? Okay, you, good. Yeah, yeah. you would know. And <laughs> yeah. so, you know, this is a courtroom term. If somebody in, in that uh, first century Roman Empire type situation mm. was accused of a crime, they would have the opportunity to give an apologia, to defend themselves. Mm. And so there's, there's definitely sort of a connotation with this word that this is going to have intellectual components to it. We it, This isn't just, oh, I believe this because my heart tells me so or because I get these really good feelings when I worship God. But these are these are logical reasons to explain why we believe what we believe, why we believe Christianity is true. And so that's really what apologetics is. And then, of course, that's going to branch out into all sorts of disciplines like science and archaeology and philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, biblical studies, all sorts of different things uh, that, you know, any kind of evidence that's out there. There is what is what we're looking for. And so, yeah, in that sense, every Christian is an apologist already. I really relate with what you were saying about in your book when you talk about that Bible study that ended up being of a bait and switch sort of situation, you know, not what you yeah. expected from a Christian church. Early on in your book, you say, you know, as you are navigating through your faith crisis, I realize that it's not enough to simply know the facts anymore. We have to learn how to think them through and to assess information and come to reasonable conclusions after engaging ideas, religious ideas logically and intellectually. We can't allow truth to be sacrificed on the altar of our feelings. Can you say more about why we need to sort through our faith both logically and intellectually? It seems like for some people, feelings are enough. All my life, feelings were enough for me. And this is why it's I, I'm so passionate about trying to inspire Christians to, you know, not everybody has to do a deep dive into all the intellectual disciplines, certainly, but every Christian should just have a working knowledge of at least the evidence for the resurrection and just some basic biblical reliability type issues. And the mm-hmm. reason I say that is because my whole life— I didn't doubt what I believed at all. And at the same time, it wasn't because I had a blind faith or even a shallow faith. My faith was very deep. I loved Jesus very much. I believed, I took him at his word. I believed the Bible was his word, and I studied the Bible. It wasn't blind, and it wasn't Mm. shallow, but it was largely informed by what felt right to me. And so I would go Mm. to Bible studies. I would go to worship services, and I would feel those goosebumps. I would, you know, I associated that with the presence of God. At some of the darkest moments of my life, I would cry out to God and I would sense his presence. And and I, you know, looking mm-hmm. back even after all this intellectual study, I do believe that many of those times I was sensing his presence, his manifest presence. But it was informed by something I was feeling. And so when I I got to this class where this pastor was in deconstruction, And he was very compelling at convincing me that these goosebumps and this 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 feeling that I had associated with the presence of God, you know, you can recreate that feeling. And when I was really dead level honest with myself, he was right. When I would listen to twelve years old, listen to Beatles songs or U two, I would get, I would sort of feel that really similar type thing. And if that's all we have 
to say, that's my evidence, well, then what are we going to tell the Mormon that feels the burning in the bosom or the the Muslim who has a palpable connection to the Quran? You know, we, we have to have something outside mm. of that. So when we do sense the presence of God, when we do connect deeply emotionally with those truths, we make sure it's, it's actually based on actual truth because we can have those transcendent type experiences around a lot of different things. And so I think that engaging our faith intellectually, especially now with how global everything has become, I mean, kids are growing up with access to what people think all over the world because of the internet. And it's just never been more important mm-hmm. for us, not that we become apologetics robots or become, you know, just intellectual only, but our feelings and, and all of that has to be based on truth because our feelings can lie to us so easily. I know that my feelings have lied to me lots of times in my life. You know, I think I think it's just a really important thing that, that Christians need to at least add to their spiritual life is just an intellectual understanding of what they believe and why they believe it. Yeah, I think you would never say that it has to be one over the other, but there has to be a, a healthy integration of understanding why it is we believe certain things and how that belief structure can inform a lot of what we feel and experience and help define the feeling that we're having. That's which I right. Think is, is very important. And, and I think I hear you saying that in a lot of ways. And it's beautiful. And, you know, I think for some of us, there are those moments where we don't have the right knowledge space or the right form. We're not able to have the right um, apology prepared for our faith, the right defense for our faith. And as you, you highlight throughout your book so eloquently, Elisa, you have this whole process where you're navigating this season in life. We're having this crisis of faith. And uh, we all have these crises of faith moment. I think our listeners probably can relate to that to a degree. And one of the things I, I'd love to hear from you, and you spell it out a little bit in the book, but I'm wondering, like, what is the process maybe for navigating something? So, I mean, assume I'm dealing with a real crisis of faith moment where I'm trying to wrestle. And I, I taught college and I would have these, I'd have many students ask this question in my Bible classes. How can a good God, how can a good God allow people to go to hell? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I have this crisis of faith moment. And if I don't have the right knowledge structure, my feelings, as skewed as they might get, might lead me in one direction. How would you suggest I navigate that? Maybe how would I, where do I start in order to progress forward? No pun intended. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, because we do want to progress in our own faith. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. But yeah, there's a difference between us growing and progressing. and 100%. Eternal truths of Christianity. That's, I always like to say that because sometimes progressive Christians will say, well, don't you want to progress? Well, yes, of course I do, but the eternal truths of God don't. But yeah, this hell question, this is one of the biggest questions. In fact, if you look online, you can find several different sources for what they call the six pillars of deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And the Bible is the first one. That's the first thing to go. But this hell question is one of those six pillars that causes people to go into deconstruction and even sometimes un belief or into progressive Christianity or something else. And in fact, I just this week, I saw a meme where somebody had posted something about this. Like, And the assumption I think that I see most often is for people who maybe are not Christians or are deconstructed Christians, 
they think, and maybe this is how they felt when they were in the church, I don't know, but they think that people are Christians because we're scared of hell. It's like we have this punishment uh, dangled over our heads, and so we just we become Christians because we just don't want to go to hell. There's just this fear of hell, and that's why we're Christians. And I think that that's a fundamental misunderstanding, first of all, of why people follow Jesus. I don't follow Jesus because I'm afraid of going to hell. I follow Jesus because I love him and I want to be in his presence for eternity. I want to be in that beautiful presence of God where he's going to wipe away every tear from her eye, where there will be no more crying, no more pain. That's what I want. I want to be with him because I love him. I want to jump in for a minute. Just yes. I want, our, I want people to hear what you just said, because what you said, I think is really important. And I, I wonder sometimes if people in progressive Christian camps, they really latch on to this fundamental perception that you've addressed here where people i want to go to heaven it's the seven-year-old i I don't want to go to hell i'll be i'll do whatever i need to do not to go to that place Mm -hmm. or whatever understanding that has been developed for me about what hell might be or might not be whether it's accurate or not is beside the question but how many of us have chosen our christian faith out of sheer fear Mm. of this hell issue turn or burn issue Mm -hmm. and so we turn out of that and i think a lot of the response we hear in the progressive Christian camps is in response to that. It's a visceral response over top and overboard. And what you just said is, I think is really important about you have chosen Jesus not because of the fact that you will be saved from some eternal punishment, but it's for the sake of pure love and relationship that you've experienced with Jesus, which still raises the question and it hangs in the balance though mm-hmm. for us. Is what what yeah. do you do? It makes, how do we make sense of it? Yeah, and that's so I think that's a good place to start is yeah. to just ask yourself that question. You know, are you a Christian because you're scared of whatever you think hell is or are you a Christian because you love God and you want to be with him forever? Cuz that's that's like the first question we have to ask when we're thinking through the hell question. The second thing as I was thinking this through and as I was really studying systematic theology for the first time as an adult. I studied the Bible my whole life, but I'd never really studied systematic theology to figure out how all the pieces fit together. And one of the things I realized when I really studied theology is that I had quite a few misconceptions about what hell actually is. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. There's There there seemed to be a lot of this Turner Burn stuff in the air. In fact, in my book, I write about this traveling church play that the theology of this play was absolutely terrible. You know, the devil is just having a, so much fun in hell, and he gets oh, to man. drag all the <laughs> souls to hell, you know, and, and like, and it's like these poor people that just never got to hear the gospel and he comes out of his fiery pit cackling and he, yeah. they're mine and he drags <laughs> them away. And so I, I think that there were, I had so many misconceptions about hell. And so we have to first understand fundamentally what hell is. Okay. So I write all the language Jesus uses to describe hell and what the Bible uses to describe hell. And there are some really difficult words in there. You have fire and darkness and a blazing furnace, a place where the fire never goes out, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. There's there's all of this language. And what I didn't realize, though, is when you really think about fire and darkness existing together— well, they can't actually exist together because fire would light the darkness and then, or, you know, they just, fire and darkness can't coexist. So there, uh, Norm Geisler, Thomas Howe 
wrote this in in one of their books. These are powerful figures of speech that appropriately describe how unthinkable the reality of hell is. So it doesn't actually, you know, to think of fire and darkness as metaphors doesn't actually make hell any nicer of a place. Mm -hmm. It actually probably makes it worse. That's just the best language we have to comprehend what an awful place it is. And I like what J.I. Packer said when he described hell. He said, hell is the negation of fellowship with the Lord. It's the negation of pleasure, the negation of any form of contentment. So I think primarily, even if someone does believe the fire is literal, that's fine. There's debate over that. But we have that's not primarily what it is. Primarily, hell is the absence of the love of God, the goodness of God. And I think what people fail to contemplate and really think through is that none of us even have a category for what that is like, because even the most hardened atheist experiences God's common grace. Right. They still mm-hmm. experience goodness in life. They still can experience love and joy and goodness in some sense. But hell is a place where all of that is absence. Mm-hmm. Just, it's just, it's unthinkable, really. How but, devastating. How devastating. And so you think about people who love their sin here on this earth. We, you know, we all sort of do that uh, from time to time before we repent. There's something about it we love. Yeah, yeah. There's something about it we love, but ultimately that sin is like an acid that mars and destroys us. Mm. But yet still we, we choose it. And I think heaven and hell can be seen sort of through that lens first before we go to all the other stuff is, do you want God's goodness and righteousness mm-hmm. and holiness and justice. Uh, because if you do, you can have it. If you don't, you can have your sin for eternity. Yeah. And that's that's the first thing we have to think about with hell. God's not going to force—if if someone does not like God now, they're not going to want to be with him for eternity. Isn't that something? I mean, that's really—that's where we have to start yeah. with the question of hell, I think. If we're thinking about sin and the way that in progressive Christianity, some people who have made their way in as disciple-makers in this realm of thought, there's a specific crisis that people have as it relates to you know sex and gender issues and what the Bible says about our identity and our sexuality. I'm thinking specifically of Nadia Bowles Weber. I actually saw her speak once before I even knew who she was when I was attending a non-denominational church that turned out to be progressive. And I figured it out that night when Mm. um, we went to that lecture and she said countless (laughs) heretical things I wanted to walk out. What advice would you have for someone who is wrestling with the seemingly attractive options presented by people like Nadia Bowles-Weber? You know, it all sounds good on the surface. Yeah. Well, and it sounds good because essentially, if you read Nadia Bowles-Weber's book, it sounds good because she's giving you permission to basically engage in whatever sexual behavior you want to. And not only is she giving you permission to do that, but she's giving you permission to call that holy. Mm. And so I think all of us can understand why that would be attractive. It's, it's basically a message of you can do what you want. You can gratify your sexual desires in any way you want. And there's no, there's not going to be any negative fallout from that. There's not going to be any sort of um, judgment from God or from your fellow Christians. And I mean, if you think about the three things, you, my my friend Jay Werner Wallace always talks about the three things that take 
ministers down, take take people down, that sex money and power. And so if somebody's telling you basically, you can have it, you can have that, um, you can see why that is so attractive. But I think that where we have to start, and I think this is where maybe some of the purity culture stuff went wrong, yeah. is we we focused so much on the no. Here's what you can't do. Here's, here's how far is too far. You know, I mean, I was, again, 80s and 90s. I was right kind of in the in the heat of that, even participated in that a bit when um, in Zoe Girl, you know, I used to make this big announcement. We had this song about abstinence, and I would announce that I'm a virgin, and everybody would clap, and it was like mm-hmm. this, you know, it was just what you did in the 90s if you were, or yeah. like, you know, <laughs> early 2000s, if you were a virgin who was a Christian singer. That's just what you did. You told everybody. and that Other was people like, were doing other things in the 90s, but that's what, yeah. that's yeah. what a lot of the Christians were doing. <laughs> yeah. But that's like the, the purity culture message, right? It's like, mm. it's like that's it. And, and yes, of course, we want people to wait until they're married to have sex. This is the biblical ethic. But there's a reason for that. And I think one way to sort of combat what the message of the Nadia Boltz Webers of the world are saying is to really highlight the beauty of God's design and plan, which mm-hmm. is maybe where purity culture failed a little bit. There's a reason for the no. The no is actually a safeguard for your own heart, for your own body, for your future, for your family, for your children, for society in general. It's actually quite a beautiful safeguard that God gave us his design for sex. And so I think maybe focusing a little bit more on a holistic view of sex rather than just here's what you can and can't do can help. But but yeah, I can see why it's so appealing to people because mm-hmm. especially when people are confused about their identity and then they, they can just sort of fulfill their desires without any accountability, essentially. Yeah, that's, that's really, really good. Accountability is a key thing. As I'm thinking about how we navigate a crisis of faith. I think what you're sharing with us in both of these scenarios, whether it's sexuality issues or theological issues about hell and eschatology and things like that, I hear you saying it's really important to take a step back to ask yourself, what does the Bible teach about this? Mm-hmm. And that's critical. And we need to be able to, to, to know that. And the way you've encouraged us, at least in your book, to do this is to approach the Bible not as if it's a, a broken communicator, Mm. unable to articulate for us the right way or the path ahead. And you suggest maybe accountability around us and taking a step back to realize, you know what, we can't go down the path of saying everything's okay, whatever I want to do. We need to ask ourselves, and and again, it's an authority question, and you mentioned this in your book. So it's almost like, how do you navigate a crisis of faith? Well, if you want to navigate it, you really have to ask the question, who's in charge? Mm. Yeah. Who's in charge, right? You and you articulate that in your in your work. Who is in charge? And I think you've encouraged all of us to take a step back, say it's God and His Word that are in charge and set the agenda. And we want to take a moment to to process that. And I think about what you say a lot in your book, Elisa, about the progressive Christianity. These can be very dangerous waters for us to tread in. And I think without the right support systems, the accountability in place. Many of us who begin floating down these tributaries of the progressive streams of Christianity, I think we end up getting excited, as Kelsey pointed out, because there are these different roadmaps that are being provided. So I guess the question for you I want to ask, Elisa, is what do you think is the litmus test for whether or not one's beginning to embrace you know, mm. some of these streams of progressive Christianity? I wonder how many of us listening to this, or even myself, or anybody thinking, you know, none of us are... 
we're, none of us are immune to this. Mm -hmm. What are perhaps the litmus tests out there that we may be on a pathway or tributary that's leading into this larger stream of progression, progressive Christianity? Yeah, and that's, wow, what an important question, because there are definitely certain signs to look for. But I would say the main thing, to, and you worded this so well a second ago, is to ask yourself the question, who's in charge? Because what I notice, I'm even right now. I'm I'm studying the history of the uh, the Unitarian movement that emerged in New England in the 1700s here in the United States, and it's so much. There are so many similarities to between that and what I see in the progressive Christian movement, and that's this that it starts with the self. And so when you when you ask yourself if you're wondering like, am I falling for some of this stuff? First question you need to ask yourself is who who is in charge of me. Am I in charge of me? And ways you can sort of diagnose that is if you find yourself saying things like, well, I could never believe in a God who could, and then fill in the blank. Mm. Because then essentially what you're saying is, I'm making myself and my own heart the moral standard that God has to uh, come up to rather than the other way around. Because there are going to be things in Scripture that you disagree with. There are going to be things you come, you, you start reading and you go, ooh, that doesn't hit me right. And there's going to be, there could be several different reasons for that. Maybe you've misunderstood something. Maybe there's a cultural context you're not aware of. But ultimately, what I see in progressive Christianity is people saying, in fact, I mean, they'll, they'll outright say it very often. In her book about the Bible, Rachel Held Evans said, basically, you have this God-given conscience that he's given you to decide what's true, what's false. And this, you know, if you read the whole book, she's talking about the Bible as well. You get to decide what's true, what's false, what's, what's myth and what's true. And and you, she says, reject those things that don't lead you toward wholeness. And so I think, well, if I'm the one deciding what makes me whole, I don't have all the information. It's kind of like a child and a parent. If, <laughs> if we just let our kids do whatever they want because they don't think something's moving them toward wholeness, uh, we could actually be hurting them by letting them do that. And so how much more information does God have than I do? And so I think that's the first thing is we just have to ask ourselves, uh, who's in charge? Am I going to submit myself? to God and his word, or am I going to expect God and his word to submit itself to my preferences? And, and I think that's a tough question we all have to ask ourselves, because I, you know, we all have a tendency to do that when we're reading scripture. Well, I don't like that, so I'm going to reinterpret that a little bit differently. And, and I think that would be the first, probably the biggest and first sign to look for in our own hearts. Wow. Kelsey, you're nodding your head too. I mean, I, I'm teaching a course right now this semester in cultural backgrounds of the Bible for a master's program. And I have 40 students in the class that that's exactly right. When you get to a passage that doesn't make sense, it doesn't feel right. What is the cultural background to that passage that maybe could inform our understanding of that? And I think the easy road is to go ahead and lay in that stream of the progressive Christianity tributary and say, just carry me along. Yeah. So that's hard work to get out of that stream for a minute and try to process what is going on in the passage. It involves mm -hmm. higher education, perhaps. It involves a mentor. It involves hearing what a pastor is going to say, even if, if it's not something you like. It involves what you did, which I think is the hard work of taking seminary courses or et cetera, et cetera. To, to get yourself up to speed and, to, and knowledgeable about it. And I commend you for doing that because I don't think a lot of people are interested in the hard work. Yeah. And what you're, you're saying, Oliver, makes me think about 
the cheesy metaphor of the uh, the frog that's boiled slowly mm-hmm. without realizing it. I think that happens to a lot of people. I know at one time it even happened to me. I went to Loyola University and I was surrounded by progressive Christians and atheists and you know everything in between and very few real authentic Christians. And so what I found was difficult is you know not having that support or accountability or community that I used to have and then you're thrust into a new situation. And so it's over time that can just, you know, wear on you. I wonder for you, Lisa, what it was that ultimate tipping point of realizing I've fallen for this other gospel. How do I get back on track? Yeah. Well, in my case, I I didn't fall for the false gospel. What ended up happening was I knew that if what they were saying about God was true, then God didn't exist. And, and so it was sort of a different path for me. My deconstruction was more like, if my sins are not paid for, if the Bible is wrong, then if God exists, I don't know if we could even know who he is or, or hmm. how he's revealed himself in the world. So it went—I I was heading more—now, I, I never lost my faith. I don't want to exaggerate that. I never went over the, the threshold of saying, okay, I don't believe in God anymore, but I was— I was in cognitive dissonance where I believed and did not believe at the same time. And that's the best way I know how to explain it because Mm -hmm. it's like the man coming to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, But I knew that if the gospel was not true, I was not going to believe in God. I wasn't going to be religious in any way. And so for me, it was more like I was watching my friends walk away from the, the type of Christianity they had grown up with. And in almost every case, especially in this class that I was in, all of them had had some kind of a really bad experience with the church, maybe unanswered prayers. They prayed for—one guy just prayed for his wife to be healed, and she just—her health kept getting worse. Uh, Someone Mm -hmm. else had grown up being told that their very small and very specific brand of Christianity was the only true one, and everybody else was going to hell— um, so, so there were stories like that. And so I thought, well, I had a pretty good experience with Christianity growing up. Not that it was perfect, but maybe even, you know, mine wasn't the real thing. So what I wanted to do was go back and figure out what the real thing is. Go back to Jesus, the apostles, the earliest creeds. I mean, I'm talking pre-New Testament creeds. Figure out what, what defines Christianity, what makes it unique in the world, and then decide if that's true. Because I'm not going to walk away if my understanding of it is not accurate. I want to walk away from the real thing if I walk away. And so when I went on that journey, I mean, the evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity was so overwhelming to me. And I was so surprised, pleasantly surprised to see that the core gospel I'd been given was the one that goes back to within three to seven years of Jesus' life. I made course corrections uh, along the way as I reconstructed. My actual Christianity looks a little bit different as far as some of the secondary issues, but that core gospel was there. And and so I think that that's something that people don't often realize is they're walking away from from not the real thing. That's that's not the real thing you're walking away from. Mm. And so very often what we see is the gospel is really the cure for some of that stuff. And it's sad to me to see people just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. And as you're talking, I keep thinking how oftentimes in those circles where we're deconstructing faith, how it can be cast as 
critical and thoughtful. And in, in fact, it's actually the most opposite of critical. It becomes uncritical in every sense of the way as you watched so many of your friends just seem to not really think about what was happening, but instead just float and feel these really immense feelings. And a lot of times these crises of faith moments have immense weight and feelings. They send us spiraling into the darkness. Mm. And we hit these rock bottom moments. And again, I, I think we have to ask the question is who is your God? And who is your word? Whose word is that? What is that God's word? And how trustworthy is that God? And does he bring peace and healing? Mm. And, and it's a relationship thing. And, and I think it's so important that we don't lose that. We have to remember that there is a God out there who loves us. As you said in the very beginning, that's why you know him. Mm -hmm. And that God can carry you through a crisis of faith. It may not look like the way you want it to look, but it will be carried through nonetheless. I want to ask you, I want to, we're going to wrap our time, but I want to just fire some rapid fire questions at you. Is that all right, Elisa? Yeah, just, sure. We're not even going to respond. We're, I'm just going to ask you some questions. I'm going to move <laughs> to the next one. You can make your answer short or sweet or as long as you want. Okay. okay? Sound good? You ready? Sounds we, great. I'm ready. You got to do a stretch or anything or are you good? No, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I've got my water. Yeah, your so water. So I'm ready okay. to go. <laughs> All right, here we go. What are the dangers of heresy or disciple makers who are teaching another gospel? The danger is that if hell is real, if heaven is real, and there are eternal destinations where you will be with God or away from God for eternity, then the danger is ultimate. If somebody is leading you away from the path to being with God for eternity, there's nothing on the planet more dangerous than that. What's the best thing I could say to someone who's questioning the faith that they were inherently taught? Ask a lot of questions. Don't just start making dogmatic truth claims. Try to get to know their thinking process, how they came to the conclusions they did. Be genuinely curious and interested in their journey. And ask a lot of clarifying questions and even tough questions, but be curious. And maybe this is similar, but what advice would you have for the person right now whose faith is in crisis because of unexpected loss? I would say bring every one of those doubts and questions to the feet of Jesus because he can handle it. Our tendency is to hide and go into the dark, but just keep it in the light. Keep everything in the light. Keep coming back to Jesus. Doubt toward him rather than away from him. Doubt's okay. You don't have to be afraid of doubt. In fact, I think every mature Christian goes through a time of doubt. But everybody has a choice when we go through loss. Uh, we lost my nephew last year. It was the hardest thing my family's ever been through. And never has God come through to show his goodness and faithfulness. And I can't explain that. It doesn't make sense in the natural. But he was there so near when we needed him most. And so I would just say, keep coming back to Jesus, bringing those doubts. Tell him all of it. He can handle it. How do you know that the Bible's reliable? Well, <laughs> that's going to be tough to do a short answer on. <laughs> I would just, I would say this. We start with the New Testament because Jesus actually affirms the Old Testament in the New Testament. So if the New Testament is reliable, then we know, you know, we get the Old Testament thrown in because of the words of Jesus. So I would say there would, the people who wrote the New Testament had no reason to make this up that would have actually lasted through the suffering and the hardship that they actually went through maintaining this message. Anybody trying to invent a religion in the first century would have given up on that once they start 
getting tortured. They're not getting the money, the power, whatever reason you would do that. None of that is happening. And yet they all were willing to go to their death saying, this is really what happened. And so that would be like a very short little intro into it. But that's so good. I will take it. <laughs> that's great. I know it's a much longer question. That, yeah. that, that's a great, that's a great way to start it. I love it. Do you think the decline of Christianity in the West is getting accelerated in any way by progressive Christianity? Oh, what a good question. I don't know if it's being accelerated by progressive Christianity, because if you look throughout church history, anytime there is a decline in true faith, there's always a rise of a false one that's easier, that's more in line with where culture is at. It's much easier to say you're a Christian. So that's kind of what progressive Christianity offers people. But I think ultimately the decline of Christianity, there's just a lot of factors there. And and so much of it, I think, is, I mean, the Bible tells us this is going to happen, not just in the West, but, you know, there's going to be a great falling away way. And I think we're seeing that. We've, of course, been in the last days since Jesus, you know, initiated that with his ascension into heaven. And I think we see it keep escalating and people uh, losing their faith as almost like this Tower of Babel gets rebuilt, but it's like a digital Tower of Babel where mm. we all speak the same language again. Everything's global again. And I think that that that's probably one of the biggest reasons. But yeah, I wouldn't say that that I forget exactly how you worded the question, but I, I think progressive Christianity gives people an option where they can have both. They think they can have both. So if I wanted to teach a course in my neighborhood on apologetics, what should I cover? Well, I would just build the case from the st- from the ground up. We have to do evangelism very differently now with the intellectual climate of where people are at. So we can't just, you know, I mean, you can just preach the gospel. Of course, the Holy Spirit can convict someone's heart and they can give their life to Jesus and repent for their sins just by hearing the gospel. But very often, we have to take a few steps back and clear out some intellectual obstacles that are standing in the way of the gospel. And so it used to be, you know, you just start making the case for the existence of God. But in today's culture, we have to back up even a step from that and make a case that truth exists and can be known. Because many people don't think that it does, especially when it comes to religion. They'll just, they'll say, that's great for you. That's what you believe. That's your truth. But my truth is this. And so we to make a case for truth before we can even make a case for God. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an article in the American Conservative, I believe, and it was called The Great Christian Sorting. And it was saying that all all the things happening with the churches, like going remote and sort of this first testing of the Christian church in the West, like that would be a way of seeing who believes the true gospel essentially and who would be willing to go to their death for the faith the way that you were saying Elisa many of the early Christians were prepared to do that do you see any parallels there like with the pandemic yes yes exactly you know I've, I've processed that quite a bit I don't know if I would be equipped to answer because I see different responses and I resonate with different responses. Mm. And I think that ultimately I've tried to have a ton of grace for pastors during this time because I can't even imagine how difficult it would be to make some of the decisions that they've had to make. But I do think that as far as sorting goes, one thing I think it's really shown us and I think it's really shown me is maybe the American church hasn't been so great at real community. It's like we go to church on Sunday or, you know, now like we watch it through Zoom or whatever. But 
that's really not what the church is supposed to be according to the New Testament. This is supposed to be in each other's homes. And I'm saying this from a place of complete failure in this area. I am mm. not—this is something I—the Lord has really been convicting me that we as the church and myself massively included here need to get better at what— that model actually is, where we are discipling each other, we are ministering to each other, we are doing our lives together. And some people do that really well, but I think with the rise of the megachurch and all of these kinds of things, there's a lot of factors that make it easy to just sort of and it doesn't mean you're not a real Christian, but just easy to go to church on Sunday, but not really be a part of a Christian community throughout the week. And I think that's something the church has to take a hard look at and and try to do better. It's, you know, for me, an introvert, it was like, oh, I have to go to church on Zoom? Darn. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but then I, you know, but then you realize, man, the first time, you know, after the pandemic started that I got to be in a service where there was singing. I mean, I just wept. It was mm. it was amazing because mm. you don't realize how important all that stuff is until it's taken away. And so, yeah, the Lord's been working on my own heart in that in that area to do better and to because we need each other. We need that, especially when something like a pandemic hits or or something like that. So, yeah, that's something I'm kind of been processing through myself. You guys have both, uh, I think, tapped into something prophetically there in regard to the church, and I think. I think you'd, we'd all do well to to evaluate that. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time, Elisa, to be be with us today. And I know personally, I found your book to be so deeply thought through in regard to how we can respond critically to some of the challenging questions that we all wrestle with, especially those that have cropped up over the last couple decades. Uh, and they're not new questions, but they're questions that have really taken front and center for progressive Christianity. Um, I honestly couldn't put your book down. I thought it was that stimulating. And I found oh. myself reliving a lot of my own journey. I mean, in 2008, I was a high school math teacher and I picked up Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus, at a Barnes and Noble. And I remember reading it and thinking to myself, this is unbelievable. I'm so fascinated by this. Mm. And it led me on a similar quest and journey, I think, that you have been on yourself. So we really appreciate you. Appreciate you taking the time to write this book. I know it takes a lot of work to put something like that together. I guess I want to give you a chance, Elisa, to say anything you'd like to our, our ministry leaders that are tuning in today. Um, I'll give you the last word here. Well, I think for ministry leaders, man, first of all, bless you guys. Thank you all for just the work you do to serve the body of Christ and serve the church. I guess my my word to you would be, I know that it can be very difficult when something like progressive Christianity rises up because of the nature of progressive Christianity. It sort of bubbles up in the evangelical church. It's it's sort of already here. And so it can be very difficult to know what to do. Maybe there's a, a somebody hires a young pastor that is leaning more progressive, and you don't quite know how to deal with that. I just would encourage you to to look back throughout church history, every generation of Christians has had to do their due diligence to protect the gospel from whatever the spirit of their age was. And progressive Christianity is one of those things in, in our in our time and in our day. And so it's our job to protect the church because ultimately we have to protect the sheep um, from what Jesus describes as wolves who come in unnoticed. They crept in unnoticed. I think it was, was it Jesus or Paul that described false teachers that way? And so as difficult 
difficult conversations. Maybe somebody needs to be let go even ultimately. And those are very, very hard things that nobody really wants to do. We kind of want to just stick our head in the sand and be like, it'll be okay. <laughs> but we we can't do that because the nature of progressive Christianity is uh, it's like yeast, like the Bible talks about. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, and it does happen that way. So I just encourage you to do the hard things, pray, and, you know, Stand up against this movement because this is corrosive to the actual gospel, which is ultimately going to be harmful for the sheep. So that that would be my my word to to ministry leaders out there. That's a strong word, and I think it's an important word. And um, we appreciate our ministry leaders for tuning in to this episode of the Transforming Discipleship Podcast. This is brought to you by smallgroups.com. We're a ministry of Christianity today. We appreciate you. We're praying for you. We hope you continue to find this podcast helpful for your ministry and your ministry leaders and people involved. If you are finding it helpful, please share it with a colleague or ministry partner. If you'd like full access to smallgroups.com, you can subscribe today. We have various plans to meet your budget. This will give you access to hundreds of Bible studies, and indeed, some will even be on the topics of apologetics that we've been talking about today. You will also be able to have access to our segment, our newest segment called Ask the Expert. And finally, I really want to encourage you, if you haven't already, gone to Amazon and bought it, go get Elisa Childers' latest book, Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. It has been one of my favorite books this year so far, and I found her work to be well-researched and thorough at the same time, extremely accessible for all those who have questions to answer. So until next time, my friends, God bless you.